Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name's Rick Zamprin. Ontario's latest throne speech is getting panned for being too vague. Health officials are playing catch-up with the HPV vaccine. Strippers fighting the government in court. We'll tell you how a river in Quebec won the rights of personhood. And Wednesday is International Walk to School Day. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. As we know, the throne speech coming out yesterday, there were some uh, items obviously related to the COVID-19 pandemic recovery. However, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying, hold the fort here. It shouldn't be all pandemic related. We should be looking at our spending. So here to discuss this is Jay Goldberg. He's the interim CTF Ontario director, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jay, how's it going? Doing very well. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, The speech from the throne says Ontario's economic recovery will be fueled by growth, not spending cuts or tax hikes. Thoughts on the government's approach? Well, unfortunately, the government, I think, is taking a approach here. I think they're not uh, with status quo. We won't balance the budget until at least 2095, when the vast majority of us still aren't around. So uh, it's disingenuous for Premier Ford to suggest that they can balance the budget just through economic growth. And there's a lot of spending items we could look at to try to make a difference and balance the budget a lot sooner. So what are those items include? Well, uh, for example, we, we're giving uh, tens of millions of dollars to political parties every year that they're spending on whatever they want, like uh, attack ads and lawn signs. Uh, we know that we're giving billions of dollars a year in corporate welfare to companies. Uh, just last year, we gave $300 million to the Ford Motor Company. They're a Fortune 500 company. Uh, they don't need taxpayers' money especially when we're running big deficits. And then, of course, there's the question of uh, public sector workers, uh, government employees who have largely gone through the downturn without uh, facing any uh, real financial difficulty, while the rest of society uh, has been facing job losses and a really difficult economic time. And so I think it's fair to ask them to take a pay freeze as well. So there's a lot of things we could do to try to tackle the deficit. Unfortunately, Ford ran as a pro-taxpayer candidate, but he hasn't uh, lived up to his reputation. Canadian Taxpayers Federation also calling on Premier Doug Ford to not follow in federal PC leader Aaron O'Toole's footsteps when it comes to the carbon tax. What's your message on this point? Well, the message is pretty simple. Doug Ford won a majority government, including sweeping across the 905 region, which is where pretty well every election is won and lost here in Ontario. And he ran against the carbon tax. He said he was going to scrap Kathleen Wynne's cap-and-trade program, that he would not introduce the carbon tax. Uh, And he won big. And then uh, Aaron O'Toole decided to embrace carbon taxes. He was virtually shut out of the 905. And so what I would say to Premier Ford is that he should follow his own strategy from last time and come out clearly against carbon taxes because conservatives don't inspire uh, right-leaning voters or centrist voters to go vote for them if they're just trying to come out the same as the liberals, essentially liberal light, which is what Aaron O'Toole did. In 2018, uh, Premier Doug Ford promised cheaper gas prices and an income tax cut. Neither of those has materialized. Um, Should he return to the barrel again, or is there something else he should be doing? Well, I think, again, Ford ran as a very pro-taxpayer candidate. He promised some key tax cuts, including income tax cuts. And look, we've all been through a difficult time. Uh, The Ford government is saying that they want to continue to be there to support 
uh, Ontarians as we move forward. And one of the best ways to do that would be to implement the income tax cut uh, that Ford uh, proposed during the election, which would uh, positively impact the vast majority of Ontarians. Uh, at a time when they're handing out money left, right, and center, it really is time to leave more money back in the pockets of taxpayers. And in terms of the gas tax cut, that's going to be crucial because uh, Doug Ford made that promise at a time when gas prices were high. But we're now seeing gas prices in Ontario that are nearing all-time highs. And with the federal carbon tax set to go up from $40 a tonne to $170 a tonne by 2030, we'll be looking at gas prices that are $1.90 a litre without taking action. And so absolutely Ford should go ahead with those cuts. Jay, we don't really have a sense on what the government is doing, both provincially and federally, and it's kind of scary at times, what they're doing to tackle the debt and the deficit. They they both say that, you know, the uh, money has to be spent to, to combat the pandemic, and, you know, we're, we're trying to save and trim here and there, but we don't really see a clear plan at either level of government, which is kind of disturbing. It's very disturbing. There's no clear plan. The parliamentary budget officer says the feds won't balance the budget till 2070. Ontario won't balance until at least 2095. And I think there's a really important distinction we have to make between government spending to deal with the pandemic and long-term government spending that just becomes permanent. Uh, you know, if there's temporary spending we need to do to deal with COVID-19, whether it's in the health care, whether it's in long-term care, that's a conversation to be had, and it's, it's quite possible that we should be making some of those investments. But when it comes to three, four, five years from now, we need to see plans from both governments to get spending back down to the levels they were before the pandemic to make sure that we can get to a balanced budget uh, relatively quickly. Because as we saw in Saskatchewan in the 1990s, when your debt gets out of control and you have to start spending the vast majority of your budget on interest payments, Saskatchewan's NDP government had to close 52 hospitals in the 1990s just to keep the lights on. We don't want to see that happening in Ontario. We don't want to see that at the federal level. And so we need to make prudent choices today to avoid painful cuts tomorrow. And I think that's the real solution. Well said. Jay, I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Jay Goldberg, Interim Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And uh, yeah, as I said earlier, that key takeaway for me for the throne speech is that the province's economic recovery is going to be fueled by growth, not spending cuts or tax hikes. So let's start to see that growth. Let's start to see those plans to get us growing, to get Ontario growing. You know, having signs along highways to say Ontario is open for business, which we've had for a while now, was... Fine and dandy, but we have to shift gears here, so to speak. Pardon the pun. we got to think big and, yeah, get new industries into Ontario. Expand what we're doing. Do it environmentally friendly, by the way, as well. So we keep our rivers and lakes and kids healthy. But at the same time, this province has to find a new gear. What, what that gear is and what industry is going to come here, I know we're open for business. Companies do know that. But what kind of incentives are we putting in place to bring them here and keep them here and create new jobs? That's what it's all about. And this government and many governments across this country are, you know, treading water in that respect. And, you know, hey, it's happening around the world. It's not as easy to say, hey, we're open for business. Business X come to Ontario and uh, let's make money together. Let's create jobs together. There's a lot of hard work in that. But there's not much direction in the throne speech, at least from what we saw yesterday, 
to get us to that place. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. This is HPV Prevention Week in Canada, and a couple of organizations, the Federation of Medical Women of Canada and the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, are calling on federal and provincial health units to prioritize HPV prevention. Here to chat about it is Dr. Vivian Brown, past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada and chair and co-founder of HPV Prevention Week in Canada. We say good morning to Dr. Brown. Good morning, Rick. Remind us what HPV is again. So HPV is human papillomavirus. It's a very common virus. About 75 to 80% of adults will be exposed at one point in their life. And we have a vaccine to decrease your risk of HPV. What's really important is that in every province and territory, kids, boys, and girls are entitled to get the vaccine in school. The problem is we haven't had school normally in the last year and a half, and so the school programs have been on hold. So we've got a lot of kids that missed their shots last year, maybe are missing it this year, and have basically fallen through the cracks. Hamilton Public Health says school-based HPV vaccinations fell from 62% in 2019 to 7% last year as schools were shuttered. And uh, Ontario physicians have reported a 33% decline. So how do we get to those students? I think one of the most important things is just what we're doing now, putting it on the radio, letting parents know that this is important because parents don't necessarily know what their kids have missed. And, you know, in Ontario, we, we do the immunizations in grade seven. It's HPV, but it's also meningitis and hepatitis B. So I think what's really important is for parents to phone their family doctor or their public health unit and find out how to get their kids caught up. So can HPV be a serious condition that someone gets? Well, HPV is a virus. Some of us clear the virus the way we clear a common cold, but about 20% of us don't clear the virus. So persistent HPV leads to six different kinds of cancers in susceptible people. Those cancers include cervical cancer, vaginal and vulvar cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer, and one of the cancers that's really on the rise is throat cancer, head and neck cancers, particularly in men. HPV is a really deadly virus. And what we do with vaccination is we don't just prevent infection, we actually prevent cancers. So when your kid gets immunized or you get immunized as an adult, you're, you're decreasing your risk of cancer lifelong. So are there any clinics being organized for schools to get students who missed the shot last year uh, get it this year? That's a really good question, and it depends on your public health unit. In Ontario, we've got 34 different public health units, and each public health unit is is, uh, functioning slightly differently. So some public health units are starting up clinics. Some schools may be starting up clinics but it's not clear what's happening across Ontario. So you really have to contact someone in your area. Our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton is Dr. Vivian Brown, past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada and and chair and co-founder of HPV Prevention Week in Canada. We're talking about the HPV shot and how uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really um, uh, delayed or suspended many shots in schools because schools have been closed. Can an individual get the HPV vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time? 
Well, that's a really good question. And our National Advisory Committee on Immunization just came out last week and said, yes, <clears throat> excuse me, it's safe to co-administer COVID vaccine with any other vaccine. So when you go for your flu shot or if you need a shingle shot or HPV or any other shots, it can be combined with COVID shots. It's like one-stop shopping. Go see your doctor or your pharmacist or your public health nurse and get caught up on immunization. And why grade 7 students? Why, why was that school year targeted? It was targeted because kids under 14 only require two shots. Their immune system is very robust, and so <clears throat> they get away with a shot and a second one six months later. As you get older, your immune system is not as robust, and you need three shots. As well, in grade seven, we presume or hope that most kids have not already been exposed to HPV, so they're going to get the best bang for their buck. They're going to get the best immuno response because they haven't yet been exposed. So if you are in grade eight or maybe even in high school, you missed your shot and uh, you're able to call your doctor or public health unit to arrange for one, is it as easy as that? Absolutely, and our guidelines say that there's no upper age limit Although ideally we're trying to focus on kids 14 and under in the school system, uh, no matter how old you are, you get benefit from immunization. And so even if you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, doesn't matter, call your doctor if you're at risk for being exposed, if you have a new partner, if you have a change in your situation where you may be exposed again to HPV, even though you passed your teenage years, it's well worth it to get immunized. If someone wants more information about the shot or about the uh, you know, missing their shot, where can they go? Well, there's a number of different websites, including the Federation of Medical Women of Canada. We've got, uh, and the SOGC has HPV and you on their site. Uh, the Federation site is FMW, uh, FMWC. And we've got a whole area of explaining about HPV um, but I'll tell you, I'm a family doctor, and perhaps I'm biased. If you've got questions that are important and you need them answered, talk to your doctor. That's the person that really cares about you and your health. Without a doubt. Dr. Brown, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Dr. Vivian Brown is the past president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada and chair and co-founder of HPV Prevention Week in Canada. So if you were in grade 7 yesterday and or your child was and uh, now they're in grade eight and they missed that shot or in their high school and they missed that shot uh, call your doctor call hamilton public health to say hey my kid missed their hpv vaccine can we arrange for uh for a shot and uh, as you heard it is safe to do so if you've already received the covid19 vaccine so uh, call your doctor call your public health unit and uh, arrange for that shot because it's uh, we want to keep everyone safe uh, not only with COVID, but with other uh, viruses and diseases as well. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Big day at uh, Queen's Park yesterday where the Ontario government delivered its latest throne speech. And, uh, well, critics are panning it. Ontario cannot go backwards. After 18 months of fighting this pandemic, we owe our businesses stability and certainty. Your government also recognizes that we cannot live under these exceptional measures forever. Vaccine certificates are a temporary policy that will be lifted when it's safe to do so. 
in consultation with the Chief Medical Officer of Health. That is Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell delivering the Ontario government throne speech yesterday. And it's getting panned because not a lot of details in there. It included the ultimate goal, quote-unquote, of avoiding future COVID-19 lockdowns, and if any additional public health measures are needed, they will be localized and targeted. But, I mean, we've heard that before, right? Yesterday's throne speech focused on supporting the province's health care and long-term care systems. We know that the province and the government has been doing that all along and spurring economic recovery while coming out of the pandemic. We, we know the government is planning to do that as well. Not a lot of details in black and white. And the thing that piqued my interest the most, I think, was that the province said that the economic recovery is going to be fueled by growth, not spending cuts or tax hikes. Here to chat about yesterday's throne speech is Stephen Del Duca. He's the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. How would you summarize yesterday's throne speech? Oh, it was a throne speech about nothing. It was empty rhetoric, a lot of platitudes, and uh, it's just shocking to me that we had to wait for this amount of time to hear so little from Doug Ford about what his plans are for Ontario, for the balance of the pandemic, and most importantly, for the recovery on the other side. Now, the province's economic recovery, as I said, is going to be fueled by growth, not spending cuts or tax hikes. How can Ontario's economy grow during the pandemic? Well, you know, that's a great point. But the other the other uh, thing that I will mention, and I said this repeatedly yesterday, it's great to talk about growth. And I think we all want to see economic growth. But I'm here to tell you, when your throne speech doesn't even include the word education once, education is the single greatest competitive advantage this province has. I say that as a former economic development minister creating a pool of talent. When you don't even mention education once, you cannot possibly be serious about long-term economic growth. And yesterday, Doug Ford completely ignored education and $10 a day child care. Uh, Again, it's just uh, completely discouraging and disappointing, I'm sure, for the people of Ontario. I want to get to the child care issue in a minute. So you're seeing the growth as growing people to become bigger and better and uh, you know, open new stores, uh, create new businesses. Is that where your growth is is coming from? Yeah, absolutely. We we know that, again, uh, creating a world-leading pool of talent here in this province, women and men who can start up businesses, who can grow those businesses, who can be entrepreneurial. Um, you know, we know businesses want to come to Ontario historically, and the reason they do is because our workforce is well-trained and, and there's a good quality of life here. So to not include education, which, by the way, is the second largest spending ministry this government has, any government has in, in Ontario in, in modern history, to not, to not include education when moms and dads like me and my wife are still nervous about what's happening in schools for our young daughters, when we know class sizes are too big and we don't have proper ventilation and schools in some communities are in a bad state of disrepair, to not even mention education is a complete missed opportunity. I know the throne speech is not akin to a budget, but there wasn't much of a fiscal plan in place or even a blueprint in place yesterday. How concerning is that? Well, I think that's I, I think that just speaks to the larger issue that we've been talking about. I don't think Doug Ford took this particularly seriously. Uh, we all know that for most of the summer, Doug's been in hiding. Uh, he, he didn't speak to media yesterday. Another thing I was shocked by. Most premiers, most prime ministers will address media or respond to questions on the day of a throne speech. Doug didn't. 
Uh, I hear that he's not going to be in question period today, that he's now back out on the road, supposedly. He is a premier who's been in hiding now for several months. At one point, his team said, well, it's because of the federal campaign. You know, he's not the story right now. Federal campaign is over. We need real leadership that's competent and compassionate in Ontario right now, and Doug Ford's not providing it. So what's your best guess in why he is not at Queen's Park? I think his campaign team has told him, and they know this, that the more people see of Doug Ford, the less likely they are to support him. And we know that there's an election that's going to be starting in Ontario in seven months. They are only concerned about saving their own political skin. Stephen Del Duca is our guest. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, CHML. Mr. Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, you mentioned $10 a day child care. Uh, several other provinces have signed a deal to that effect with the federal government. What's going on here in Ontario? Yeah, you are right about that. There are eight, eight out of uh, eight provinces and territories have signed deals. <clears throat> Ontario, amongst the provinces, the, is the, one of the only holdouts, along with Alberta, and I think fundamentally Doug Ford doesn't believe in providing $10 a day child care. It's why I think he's dragged to sea on this one. Um, there are rumors that he's trying to negotiate, but I don't know how seriously he's taking the negotiation. And here's what we know. We know that thousands of working families in Hamilton and beyond, and, and especially working moms who want to get either back into the workforce or start on the workforce, which we need, by the way, when women's participation in the economy drops to the point that it has, it's bad news for all of us economically, and $10 a day childcare is the single greatest, I'll say, weapon to help us bring that participation up, like you see in Quebec, like you see elsewhere in the world. And we desperately need that here in this province. And the federal government wants to actually wants to actually pay the freight or pay the bill for almost all of delivering that $10 a day childcare agreement. You just need to you need to want to do it as a premier, like most of the others have. And so I think Doug has been dragging his feet for some time, and that's a real shame. I hope we get a deal in Ontario, and if we do and it's a good deal, I'll be the first one to support it. Uh, we got less than a minute here. Two of Ontario's 70 PC MPPs have COVID-19 medical exemptions. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath called that statistically curious. Are you suspicious? Yeah, look, I am suspicious, but mostly because Doug Ford has made it quite clear he doesn't truly believe in vaccine mandates. He doesn't truly believe in the vaccine certificate. He's undermined both, A, by taking too long and then saying he doesn't really believe in either. And I think that gives people license to not really take it that seriously. Again, that's not competent leadership, and it's a real shame. Stephen, appreciate the time today. Enjoy it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Stephen Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Riggs Amperin on 900 CHML. A group representing strippers was scheduled to argue in court yesterday that they've been targeted by Ontario's pandemic restrictions at their workplaces. The campaign is called WorkSafe TwerkSafe. It filed an application for judicial review last year after the province ordered all strip clubs closed, citing COVID-19 risks. Here to chat about it is Naomi Sayers of WorkSafe TwerkSafe, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Naomi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So what happened in court yesterday? Yeah, so uh, I represented uh, WorkSafe TwerkSafe in the hearing yesterday as their uh, lawyer. Uh, the case was dismissed by the divisional, the superior, the divisional court yesterday. A panel of three judges heard it. Uh, we will get reasons later in the week. Um, my clients have concerns about how uh, the 
regulatory framework still targets them. Their conditions have not changed. They have uh, worsened, uh, as one can expect, uh, when um, an employer, their employers, or the, the strip club environments um, face economic fallout is when the most marginalized workers in, in the environment are going to experience the most harm. You mentioned uh, reasons going to be revealed later this week. I know you got to be careful, mm-hmm. but is there mm-hmm. a guesstimate or, or a thought on what those reasons are? Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm. You know, I have to. You know, walk a fine line here yeah. as, as their lawyer. Um, but in terms of, I, I suspect perhaps maybe uh, jurisdiction, and then just a, based on uh, past uh, decisions that they have released on the matter is that they just declined to hear similar uh, challenges. They provided a lot of deference. The courts have provided a lot of deference to the Ontario government. Uh, but the difference here in terms of the shippers' case is that they were specifically targeted by public officials' comments. And uh, there is, you know, jokes about them by Premier Ford that really, you know, got to the core of who they were and just didn't disregarded who uh, their health and safety in the workplace. What is the likelihood of an appeal? Uh, well, we'll have to wait for the reasons, right? So uh, sometimes the decisions can provide insight into uh, uh, what the court, uh, it, like the temperature of the court, if you will. Uh, so we'll, uh, you know, we can provide an update uh, after we receive the decision and uh, once I receive instructions from my clients about next steps. So what are your clients' concerns? Yeah, so primarily is the fact that, uh, you know, as uh, strippers pre-COVID, they were tasked, you know, sometimes uh, with with cleaning their environments. But now COVID has hit uh, different standards of cleaning are involved, right? More frequent standards of cleaning. Um, so they're, as you know, uh, strippers are not prepared and dressed for cleaning in the workplace, they're dressed for, uh, you know, putting on stage shows and entertainment type thing, if you will. Uh, and to offload those risks onto the strippers, um, they experience reprisal, right? So if you don't come in and do X number of stage shows uh, or if you, uh, you know, don't do these tasks that we ask you, uh, you're out or you're gone. You have to go find another job at another club. And so forced to migrate, forced to move, so forced to uh, take on uh, difficult and hard choices um, in terms of of their health and safety. So are the uh, COVID-19 cleaning procedures different in a strip club now than they would be at any other workplace? So um, I believe that the strip clubs are following the guidelines, right? So, but what the issue here is, is that um, what led to the initial closures was the individuals were not giving, so people who went into the strip club were not giving their proper screening information, right, as one can expect. So it becomes harder to trace them if there is an outbreak or if they need to be contacted. And strippers, you know, have their own tools and methods and they maintain relationships with their clientele, with other strippers. So to leave them out of this framework is really just uh, putting them in, in, in this harm's way of, you know, the, the expertise that they can bring to the table. We're chatting with Naomi Sayers, lawyer representing those involved in the WorkSafe, TwerkSafe campaign. Um, is another crux of the matter uh, the lack of consultations with strippers as well to get their feedback on what should be happening? 
Yeah, so WorkSafe WorkSafe has a history of consultation with the City of Toronto, and in fact, they had a meeting set up in March 2020, right immediately before the shutdown. After the shutdown in March 2024-2020, the City of Toronto never uh, set that meeting back up again. And obviously, this is is the fallout, right? You have, um, you know, a, a closure in a club and then an outbreak in another, and then you have the stigmatization of the strippers even further. So if they, you know, the City of Toronto had just kept the meeting, perhaps we would be in a different area and a different uh, situation. And how is the stigmatization impacting this whole scenario? Right. So um, it, it becomes, uh, you know, a question of, of uh, one of the questions was uh, yesterday from me was, um, how are they different from other employees in the clubs, right? So the question I put back was, why does it matter, the source of the outbreak, right? So the respondents, the government, uh, their, their evidence uh, specifically outed dancers in, in one of their affidavits So, uh, as a source of the outbreak. So why does it matter that a stripper is the source of the outbreak in comparison to another employee? If if it was in a strip club, I think that's, that's the only thing that matters, right? And then just get the information that you need to get to the public without further stigmatizing the strippers. Yeah, it could be a server, it could be a bartender, it could be a DJ, whatever the case is, a bouncer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that could uh, infiltrate any club and, and really any business. Uh, Naomi, really appreciate the time today and shedding a light on uh, what is happening here. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Naomi Sayers, lawyer representing those involved in the WorkSafe TwerkSafe campaign. And uh, it'll be interesting, interesting to hear the reasons from the judge and why uh, this uh, appeal or application was uh, dismissed Uh, yesterday in court. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. This story really caught my eye the other day because it's one of those stories that you don't see very often. And you can find lots of details online at globalnews.ca. The title is How a River in Quebec Won the Right to Be a Legal Person. Krista Hesse is an online video journalist with Global News and joins us now to chat about her article. Krista, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Not too bad. So I guess the first question, I mean, I I got a million questions on this topic, but why is this river now have legal rights as a person? Right. So the communities along the north shore of Quebec where this took place, the river is actually called the Magpie River or Motaheko Shipu in Innu. And so the river was granted nine legal rights uh, by a co- coalition of communities up along the North Shore. And basically, they wanted to do this in order to prevent a dam from being built on the river uh, in the future. Uh, there was threats in the past where Hydro-Quebec had considered putting a dam on the river, and that was enough to uh, galvanize them into action to figure out, okay, how can we protect this river for future generations? Um, when, you know, they were having issues with it becoming a protected area itself. So this was a new way that they could basically take action uh, and protect the river from future development. And this is an iconic river in Quebec for a variety of reasons, right? That's right, yeah. So it's uh, it runs through the traditional territory of the Innu of Iquanishi, but it's also a world-renowned whitewater rafting river. So people come from all over the world to take trips, like week-long trips where they get helicoptered up into the middle of the wilderness and then they raft down the river for five days. Um, it looks spectacular. National Geographic uh, says it's one of the top five in the world, which is which is pretty special. 
Sounds like this designation didn't come overnight. No, it actually took a couple years. They um, they started the process in 2018, working with lawyers in Montreal. Um, and basically what ended up happening is the Innu Vikwanishi and the regional uh, kind of government of Mingani passed two joint resolutions um, that basically assigned the River Nine rights. So, yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't an overnight process. It took quite a bit of time. Um, but they announced that back in February. Krista Hesse is our guest. She's an online video journalist with Global News, and we're chatting about the Magpie River in Quebec, which has been given legal rights as a person. So what rights does this river have? Yeah, so it actually, it, it's interesting, because you think legal personhood and you think, you know, the rights of a human being, but actually it's kind of, it's a different concept. A legal person can actually be anyone that the law recognizes as a holder of rights and duties. So, you know, corporations are also legal persons and they're not living. So the river actually has rights that, you know, a river would have, not that a human being would have. So it has the right to live, exist and flow. It has the right to respect its natural cycles. And it has the right to legal action, which is one of the really important causes there. You spoke with a few people who enjoy the river, so much so that some have made it their livelihood. Yes. um, I spoke to uh, Danny Pellet, who runs Boreal River Adventures um, up there, and he runs a right water rafting company. And, you know, it's just really important for everyone. There just seems to be this, you know, mass community um, galvanization around this river. It really touches people. I feel like even when I went up there, um, I had the chance to hike to the banks of the river and and see it in you know all its glory. And it's really special. It's um, it's not like a small river uh, as you might think. Not it's not a stream. It's it's a very large river um, that you know it's pretty majestic. What makes it a special place? Ah, oh, what makes it? A, I mean, I heard you know different things from different people. Right? I spoke to one woman in uh, Iquanishi who told me that, you know, the rivers are really important for them because their ancestors traveled inland and back to the coast using the rivers in their traditional territory. So for them, the river has a really important ancestral import, uh, and spiritual connection. Um, whereas, you know, for some of the Francophone paddlers up there, you know, this river is just an ecological gem that they don't want to see touched. Are, are there more rivers or, or lakes or, I don't know, trees that are being looked at in Canada and around the world? Yeah, actually, um, there isn't anything that uh, we can get into too much detail today. But the lawyer in Quebec that actually worked on the Magpie case told me that there are groups in five provinces working on rights of nature legislation right now. So, you know, that's that's pretty significant. This was the first case in Canada um, that was announced earlier this year, uh, and the first case in the movement's entire history uh, where an Indigenous community and a non-Indigenous community came together to pass um, resolutions simultaneously. But the fact that, you know, groups in five provinces are working on similar legislation is uh, is pretty significant, and we could definitely see a lot more rights of nature talk in Canada going forward. It's a very interesting story and a compelling story that you've written as well on globalnews.ca. I encourage all our listeners to check it out today. Krista, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Krista Hesse, online video journalist, our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton. She is with uh, Global News. And uh, yeah, if you can check it out, it is a rather lengthy article, but it is a phenomenal story. How a river in Quebec won the right to be a legal person. And who knows, there might be, you know, a forest, uh, a lake... 
a, a mountain, a valley, I'm not sure, anything environmentally that uh, people want to protect could soon have legal rights as a person. Interesting stuff. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Remember walking to school when we were younger? I mean, pretty much everyone did it. I remember going to school and there would be maybe a couple of buses. Tops. Then again, I didn't really pay attention to how many buses there were at my school. But there weren't a lot. Most kids walked to school and obviously then walked home. Tomorrow is International Walk to School Day, and there's an organization that's encouraging children and youth to walk to school tomorrow. Here to tell us about it is the CEO of Children Believe, Fred Wittaveen. Fred, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what are you hoping to see tomorrow? Well, we're hoping that Canadians uh, across the country will join us on Walk to School Day. Children Believe recently conducted a survey of Canadian parents that revealed what they consider as barriers to children's education around the world. And the results uh, showed how drastically different the path to learning is for Canadian children compared to those living in other countries. We found that 72% of Canadian children have safe transportation to school. Of those, 43% are driven to school. Another 29% have a safe walk or ride to school. So, International Walk to School Day is an opportunity for for Canadians to to talk about that. So why is this important? Why do we want more kids walking to school? Well, it's it's an opportunity for for children and parents to talk about how easy it is for them to get to school compared to kids in other places around the world. I've worked overseas, and I can tell you that the, the experience of children walking to school is very different. If you can imagine, you know, narrow roads where buses, trucks, cars, motorcycles, bicycles, carts, and animals of every size and description, dust, heat, cold. It is it is a very different experience for children walking to school overseas. So it's a chance for Canadians to talk about uh, and to become more aware of what it's like for not only for themselves, but also what it's like for children in other places. Are there any benefits to walking to school for, for the, the child or the youth? For Canadians, walking to school with parents is an opportunity to talk about uh, the benefits of education and to become more aware of how, they, how easy it is for them to get to school and, and to be able to compare that to what's going on for, for children in other places. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the, of the show that you know what it was like for us when we walked and i remember the privilege of walking my own daughter to school just talking about her school day uh talking uh on the way to school on the way back it was one of my great memories in my in my life as a parent uh, now only 16 percent of canadian students walk to school uh, that is you know far and away a a number that was not realized when you and i were kids i mean i, I think the bulk of kids walk to school when did it all change you know i was i'm think i've been thinking about that i am not sure i think you know with the, the fact that so many parents are so busy working and have long commutes i think we have come to rely on you know public transit school buses uh, but if you have the opportunity, even now during the pandemic, to walk your child to school, I, I think it's an opportunity to take advantage of. So you can have these really life-changing conversations you might not get otherwise. 
I think there's also a concern among parents, at least, and it might be in hysteria at some in some cases that they're concerned about their child's safety. Is that a concern in the right place? Well, you know, I I think parents today are much more aware of the risk children face, and and I think that that's how we respond. But the important thing is is if we can create opportunities for conversation about uh, our the, the privilege we have as parents and as children and our and our children to be able to go to school safely, I think that's important. We're chatting with Fred Wittavine. He is the CEO of Children Believe here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tomorrow is International Walk to School Day, and they're encouraging children and youth to walk to school. What if a parent can't walk their child to school tomorrow? What what are you suggesting they do? Well, they can do they can if they can't do it tomorrow, they can do it any other uh, day in October. Uh, and if they can't do it at all in October, we encourage them to go to childrenbelieve.ca to learn more how they can participate in the experience. Because we, we're not only just uh, asking parents to, to, to take their walk to school, but also to share that experience on social media where they uh, can use the hashtag, the long walk, the walk to school day, and be sure to tag Children Believe. And in terms of the fundraiser, is there a fundraising component to this, or is this just an awareness campaign? Well, it is an awareness campaign, but there is an opportunity for Canadians to respond. They can go to childrenbelieve.ca, where they can learn how they can make a positive impact. They can become a child sponsor, which is really easy to do. I myself sponsored two children, or buy an education gift through the Gifts for Good catalog. I just did it myself last week. It's really easy. It's a chance for Canadians to make a, a difference really quickly. And what is Children Believe? What do you guys do? Children Believe is a Canadian charity working globally to empower children to dream fearlessly, stand up for what they believe in, and be heard. For over the past 60 years, we've helped more than 1 million children overcome barriers such as inequality, discrimination, and violence to access education and other vital resources that children need. Today, you know, over 260 million children are out, don't go to school. Our mission is to help children access education. And why the Walk to School initiative? Why this particular mission to focus on? Well, I think it's a great opportunity for parents to have that conversation with their child about how easy it is, how safe it is for them to go to, go to school in Canada, and then to be able to think about what that is like for children in other places. We all know as parents how important is school is to, uh, for our children. And if you think about the impact on children around the world not being able to access education and how that impacts them for life, I think, I think that's a good conversation to have with our children. Very much so. Fred, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Fred Wittavine is the CEO of Children Believe, and we've been chatting about tomorrow being International Walk to School Day. They're encouraging children, youth, and parents to walk to school tomorrow. Only 16% of Canadian students walk to school on a daily basis. Uh, So if you are planning to walk to school tomorrow or anytime this week, Uh, Share your experience on social media and you'll help raise awareness for children's education in impoverished locations around the world. As Fred was telling us that, uh, you know, we we have sort of a luxury here with, you know, paved roads and sidewalks and buses and the whole kit and caboodle. Um, It's it's not that, uh, you know, kids in, in other countries are not that fortunate when it comes to getting to and from school. A lot of places it's not that safe. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML.
The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.